Are you ready this morning? Yes. Here we go. Let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2, we'll look at verses 1 through 10 this morning, reminding you that Paul has been defending his apostolic calling. He was accused of basically hijacking a position because he wasn't one of the original group that walked with Jesus, heard from Jesus when Jesus lived and walked on the earth for those 33 plus years. But Paul made this argument. Listen, I was taught by Jesus directly, just like the other apostles. I heard from him as he told me the construct of the gospel. I've seen, therefore, Jesus in resurrected form, just like all the other apostles. And just because it happened for me at a different time and through a different means doesn't mean that my appointment as an apostle is less valid than any of the others. Now, it may seem a bit odd for us to open up an epistle, or Paul to, I should say, by spending well over a chapter defending his apostleship. But he had a good reason for doing so, and we'll come upon that in our time together this morning. But let's remember, Paul wasn't defending his apostleship to promote himself. He wasn't trying to make a profit for himself. He wasn't trying to gain any personal advantage for himself in any way. The reason Paul defended his apostleship the way he has thus far, even though he was one born out of due time, was this, Psalm 138 two. The psalmist says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and truth. Now, here's Paul's reason for his defense. For you have magnified what? Your word. your word, even above all your name. Paul well understood that his credentials were essential in establishing the fact that he was speaking on behalf of the Lord Jesus himself. Now, we have made the case before, it bears repeating this morning, that when someone has a particular reputation of certain practices in their life and you mention their name, those character traits are what comes to mind. And this is why the Lord said he has esteemed his word even above all his name, because his word establishes the credibility of his name. And his word, therefore, must be infallible. It must be completely divinely inspired and true on every page to continue the establishment of Christ's name as a name above any other. And this was why Paul was arguing the case that he argued. He's going to conclude his defense this morning by giving a little more details about his itinerary. Then he's going to name two of his traveling companions. And then he's going to give the names of those he dealt with or conferred with, I should say, in Jerusalem concerning the validation of what he was teaching to the Gentiles that he learned from Jesus. Now, what he is going to deal with this morning and what our title is today is simply the everlasting gospel. The title of our time is the everlasting gospel. And aren't you glad that the work that God did in you lasts forever? Amen. It doesn't have to be renewed week to week. You don't have to get born again again. Once you're born again, you're alive in Christ forevermore. Somebody say amen. amen. Now, there is only one gospel. Amen. Paul has already stated that. There is no other gospel. As a matter of fact, he said, if someone teaches another gospel, they are departing from him who called them into the grace of Christ. And this is like another what Jesus said. Listen, if you don't have the son, you don't have the father. If you don't have the father, you don't have the son. So if you have, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, a different definition of who Elohim is, then you've got a different Jesus altogether. The Elohim is not the Elohim of Mormonism that we believe in the Bible. The Elohim is the almighty, all-powerful 
eternal God manifested in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Listen, we don't believe in three gods like the Muslims accuse us of. We believe in one God. But the important thing is for us to remember that God is a title, it's not a name. Zeus is a God, small g. Allah is the very Arabic word for God. But God is a office or a title, and by definition, the word God means supreme being. And there is, therefore, only one who can be the supreme being. Amen? Amen. And listen, I, I find the argument to be rather bizarre that God couldn't have a son. Listen, if you say God couldn't, you got problems already. Because by definition, God has to be able to do anything. Of course, there's moral things he can't do because it's not part of his character and nature. God can't lie. Hello? God can't lie. He can't ever be wrong. He can't ever be wrong. But he can do anything. He can have a son. He can manifest himself in the third person of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we need to understand why this was so important for Paul to establish that it was Christ himself who appointed him as an apostle, the Son of God, called him, and gave him the message that he now preached. Now, we also need to remember that if it's everlasting, it has to be unchanging. And therefore, we see in the future there is going to be a continuation of what has saved us all. Listen, anybody that got saved, got saved by hearing the gospel of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Everybody know, you know, we can't come to him unless the Father draws him, according to John 6, 44. And we are saved by faith. We are grace through faith. We are saved because the word of God has been preached by someone. And indeed, when we hear the word of God preached, we have the opportunity to come to salvation. This is true now. And hearing the word of God, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. So believing the word of God has always been pivotal in the transformation and salvation of human souls. And in the future during the tribulation, by the way, may I remind you that the great escape precedes the great tribulation. We're not going to be here for all this. Amen. Amen. That's coming, that is. And Revelation 14, 6 describes this season, or during this season, where John saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. The midst of heaven is a phrase that uh, is simply the word meridian. It's the high point in the sky where the sun is at noon. Having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, saying with a loud voice, and here's the gospel, Fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, there are multiple components here. We could uh, spend our whole time examining. But listen, here's what is preached during the tribulation, which must be true also now on part of the content of the gospel. We're told that the gospel has the capacity to save from every tribe, tongue, nation and people. We're told that this message is for all the earth and that God is to be viewed with reverence and awe. We're told that he is a just judge and part of the gospel is that he is the creator of all things. Listen, this um, uh, evolutionary thinking that has crept in is basically a violation of scripture. And many churches today are saying that God used evolution to bring about everything that we now see. Is that consistent with Genesis chapter 1 through 11? It's completely inconsistent with what the Bible says about the creation narrative. And again, listen, if your God can't create everything that exists in six days, your God's too small. 
My God can speak and universes exist. My God can speak and the dead are raised. My God can speak and the eyes of the blind can see. The ears who are deaf can hear. The mute can then begin to speak. That's who our God is. That's the God that we believe in. And he has a message that he wants proclaimed to the whole of the world. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some of the components of the everlasting gospel that we need to highlight this morning. And remember, they're not true just during the tribulation. They're true even now. So would you stand and read with me, please, from Galatians chapter 1. We'll start with verses 1 through 3. Galatians 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet, not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. We ask for an anointing upon the voice that speaks and the ears that hear. And God, we thank you that we can ask you for such things, knowing that it is within your will to do it. So Lord, would you increase our faith today, equip us for the work of ministry, and increase in us a boldness to tell others that Jesus is coming soon and he is willing to save. So we thank you for our time together today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Paul again gives a bit of the whereabouts of his recent journeys and his travel itinerary to further establish that he didn't spend months and weeks and years with the other apostles to learn what he learned. He learned it again directly from Jesus. And now there's some discussion as to what he means from 14 years later. Some say it was 14 years from the mention in verse 18 uh, and 19 of chapter 1. And others believe that he's talking about 14 years from his conversion. And uh, therefore, I believe in the latter is a proper interpretation simply because Paul marked his life by the moment he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And that's how the future time frame was established for him. That's why he repeated his testimony three times in the book of Acts. And listen, that's how we ought to mark our lives by the moment we met Jesus and everything began to change. Amen. Amen. Now, he mentions Barnabas and Titus were his traveling companions, Barnabas being a Jew and also Titus, he mentions, being a Greek or a Gentile. Now, he also says that he was directed by revelation to take this trip. And I believe the traveling companions were God ordained as well. And here's why. Barnabas had a reputation in the early church of being a son of encouragement. He was a, people, a person that people trusted. He was well known within the church. And therefore, someone, you know, Paul had a different reputation initially. He was the one who persecuted the church. He was the one that people were suspicious of. They weren't sure if his conversion was real or not. So the Lord gave him by revelation instruction to take Barnabas along, one who others knew, one who others trust, because then Barnabas was then associated with Titus, who was a Gentile Christian, and therefore he was, in a sense, validating the conversion of Titus as well and the apostleship of Paul by bringing Barnabas. Now, interesting, in Galatians 5, 1 through 4, uh, which we'll get to in a couple of years, <laughs> Paul says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. 
Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from what? In other words, you have fallen short of the means by which God has chosen to save. We are saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. It isn't because we obey the law. It isn't because we observe a kosher diet. And this tells us what Paul was battling all along. And listen, there are many who are fighting this same battle today via what's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. There's a movement within the church today that we are to be Torah observant Christians. In other words, we are to observe a kosher diet. We are to recognize the feast days of Israel and practice them and basically live under the law, the very law that Christ's blood fulfilled and brought us out from under that we can live during this age of grace with freedom and all for what God has done for us. Now, this is why the Lord had Paul take Titus with him. He was combating the growing influence of the Judaizers who were teaching Gentiles first have to become Jews in order to become Christians, which meant being circumcised in the kosher diet and the things we mentioned a moment ago. Now, Paul makes mention of those who were of reputation. Now, they're later identified in our final section as James, the Lord's half-brother, uh, Peter and John, two of the three of Jesus' closest associates. And they're, they're described as pillars of the church. And Paul says these pillars did not even compel Titus to be circumcised. Now, this divinely directed journey was for the purpose of assuring Paul that his efforts among the Gentiles were not in vain. And he went to his fellow apostles and presented the gospel message he was preaching. And they validated what Paul was preaching. Now, here's our first point. Paul connected the content of the gospel with whether or not his efforts were in vain. And that tells us this. Listen this morning. The content of the gospel is crucial to its effectiveness. The content of the gospel is crucial to its effectiveness. Do we have people today changing the content of the gospel? We have people adding things and subtracting things. That's what this Hebrew Roots Movement is doing. It is adding the law to being saved by grace through faith. And we need to shun such teachings. Now, there are beautiful things to recognize in the feast days of Israel. Amen? Amen. Jesus fulfilled the spring feast and his first coming. Uh, he died on Passover right at the right time when the Passover lamb was to be slain. He fulfilled uh, the Feast of First Fruits when he rose. He fulfilled, uh, uh, fulfilled Pentecost when he baptized the church in his spirit. And indeed, the, the fall feasts are going to be fulfilled, coinciding with Jesus' return, the millennial reign of Christ on earth, and the things uh, that are beautifully pictured through the feast days of Israel. But listen, we are... The church. We're not Israel. Amen. 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 We haven't replaced Israel. The Jews are still the Jews and the church is still the church. Amen. Amen. Now, one of the men of reputation that Paul communicated the gospel to was Peter. And therefore, we can safely assert that what Peter taught, Paul taught. So we have to, or at least we ought to ask the question, what exactly did Peter teach 
the Jews so we can understand what Paul taught to the Gentiles. Well, a snippet of Peter's first sermon, as he was the first preacher of those who were baptized in the Spirit on Pentecost Sunday, and he preached a gospel message to the Jews in Jerusalem who heard people speaking in their own languages, the gospel of Christ. And in Acts 2, 26 to 30, 36 to 39, Peter preached this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, Peter gives us some structure to the gospel message here that we can break down like this. He begins with personal acceptance of the responsibility for the death of Christ. Now, we all have to recognize we're sinners, right? Yes. And therefore, we need a Savior, right? Yes. Now, interesting, I heard Charles Stanley say something some years ago that really took me a minute to grasp, and it's foundationally true and, and beneficial to our understanding as well. And he made the point, a lot of people say the Romans killed Jesus. A lot of people say the Jews killed Jesus. And he said, the fact of the matter is, if you want to know who kills Jesus, it was the Father. The Father gave His only begotten Son to die for the sins of the whole world. Now, the Father sent the Son. The Son said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. And if I have the power to lay it down, I have the power to raise it up again. Jesus is the second member of the triune Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, cooperating in the redemption of the world. They're making it possible for the whole world. And the Father sent His Son into the world for the purpose of dying for the sins of the whole world. And this is where Peter starts. He starts with the responsibility of humankind to recognize their part in Christ going to the cross. After all, Paul would say in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Secondly, we see that Peter's message led to the conviction of sin. And Jesus said in John 16, 8, speaking to his disciples at the Last Supper, and when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin. We're not these men, doesn't cut to the heart mean convicted? They were cut to the heart when Peter preached. They were convicted of their role in Christ going to the cross and their responsibility. But the Holy Spirit has that job today, convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And according to Peter's formatting of the gospel, he preaches the acceptance that we are sinners. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is going to be followed by repentance symbolized through water baptism. Now, I can't even tell you how many times I've been asked, do you have to be baptized to be saved? And the answer is, no. no, you do not have to be baptized to be saved. And the example that is often used is the thief on the cross. And I think that's a good example. But I think it falls short of the best example. The best example is Jesus never baptized anybody, but he said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. So if he came to save and you have to be baptized to be saved, then he would have been baptizing everybody, right? But he didn't. Paul said the same thing. I baptized a couple people. I can't even remember who they are. 
But that's not what I came to do. I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach the gospel. Now, so what exactly is the importance of baptism? In Mark 16, 15 to 16, Jesus said again to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the people you like or agree with. <laughs> to who? Every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Now listen close. But he who does not believe will be what? Condemned. Condemned. Did you notice he dropped baptism? He dropped baptism in the final statement. Baptism is an act of obedience. It displays the fact that we are dead to self and now alive in Christ. This is a physical representation, or as it's been said, an inward work or an outward showing of an inward work. Now, Jesus says very clearly, being baptized is not equal to belief. Now, lastly, Peter said in his message that converts to Christ receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is going to be true until the end of the age. And it's going to be true in as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, we find this endorsed again by Paul writing to the church at Ephesus where he says, In him, Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. And there it is again. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy, Holy uh, Spirit of promise. I love this next uh, phrase. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I think it's important to include support scripture to any point we're trying to make. Because we're here to teach the Bible, not opinions. Right. Amen. Amen. We're here to find out what the Word of God has to say. That's why we're gathered here together today. And I wanted to include the support scriptures for our breakdown of Peter's gospel message because the gospel content will always be consistent with the content of the Bible. There's not going to be anything within the gospel message that you can't back up biblically. And therefore, the true gospel will have the same biblical effect no matter where it's preached, and that is souls are going to be saved. Now that reminds us of how Paul opened chapter 1. False gospels are just that. They are false. And because they are false, they create false hope. And therefore, we are to avoid them and even expose them. Now let's keep going. You still here? Yes. Look at 3, I'm sorry, 4 through 6. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, makes no difference to me, God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. Now, Seems likely that the audience of James, Peter, and John was invaded uh, by those as, as Paul presented his message for verification as some of those who sought to bring Gentile Christians under the bondage of the law. And somehow they disrupted the meeting, most likely verbally, because Paul makes mention that they did not yield to their demands even for an hour or for one uh, moment. Now, there is something that's important that's implied in verse 6 where Paul mentions those who seem to be something, followed by the reminder that God is no respecter of persons. And that those who seem to be something, Paul said, added nothing to me. Now, this can't be referring to anyone other than James, Peter, and John. 
those who seem to be something. This is the same group that Paul had earlier referred to as those who were of reputation. Now, Paul didn't switch gears and all of a sudden become disrespectful. This seems to indicate that it's likely that the Judaizers were taking this trio and elevating them to some kind of status that would be the equivalent of the scribes and Pharisees in Judaism. Now, this is why Paul would write to the church in Corinth in chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Now, I say this that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Then he asks the question, is Christ divided? What's the answer? No. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, this is why at the end of the service, I encourage you to tell people about Jesus. Amen. Not CCT. Not any pastor, nothing. Tell people about Jesus. And the reason I say that and the reason I like to repeat it is because there is too much I go to this church going on today. There is too much this is my pastor going on today. People need to hear about Jesus because only Jesus can save them. And listen, we need to understand the importance of this in our day because the church seems to be fragmented in so many ways. And when we get fragmented, we become ineffective. And we're here for a united purpose. And listen, Paul says, you guys can try and put these three or this trio on a pedestal, whoever they are, it makes no difference to me. In other words, Paul is saying this, it doesn't matter that these guys were physically with Jesus for three years when Jesus walked the earth, heard him teach, watched him do miracles. That doesn't elevate them to any status above anybody else because God is no respecter of persons because when the comparative is God himself, we're all pretty low on the totem pole, right? So he's just saying these guys are just like the rest of us. There's no difference in them than anybody else. So don't try and elevate them to some kind of super status like he did with the scribes and Pharisees. And then Paul says, and just let's, let's just suppose that they really were somebody. If they were, they didn't add anything to what I preached anyway. Now this reminds us of our next truth. So here we go. You ready? Yeah. Listen, here's the next thing about the everlasting gospel. The gospel is what God said it is, not what people think it should be. The gospel is what God says it is, not what people think it should be. Now, this is the essence of what Paul is saying. Yes, there were those who were apostles before I became one. But they didn't write the gospel either. They got it from Jesus too, the same one who taught me. Now, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11, we're reminded about the coming of the lawless one, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, the beast of Revelation 13, is according to the working of who? Satan. Satan. What's he work with? All power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be what? Saved. Saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. Do we live in an age of delusion today? It's just stunning, all the things that people believe today. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Those are always companions. Not believing the truth and having pleasure in unrighteousness. The truth in this case is, of course, the gospel. And we are in an age where many today will not receive the gospel. They want to morph it into something else. They want to dumb it down. They want it to become something that is more suitable to humankind than acceptable to culture and all the other things we see happening today. And I'm not sure why there are so many today who are comfortable with doing that. I'm not comfortable with messing with the word of God. 
I'm not comfortable with deleting sections. I'm not, you know, be honest with you as a pastor, I don't know how some of these guys come up with topical messages week after week after week after week. Listen, I know what I'm preaching next week. I'm starting in verse 11 and going forward. And that's, uh, maybe it's just because I'm not smart enough to come up with all these topics, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's such a, a, an encouragement for us to just find out what God is saying in the context of what is written. Now, remember in Paul's day, they were less than 20 years from Pentecost. And already there were some who were trying to add circumcision and law keeping to the gospel. Now, we have detractors today. There are critics of the Bible today, right? Yeah. Always have been. But we also have subtractors today. Those who say God loves you the way you are. Is that true? Well, sure he does. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God does love humanity. Now they add to this that God has no desire to change you only to save you. Is that true? No, absolutely not. Now here's my question to that crowd who practice what the, some have dubbed sloppy agape. <laughs> if God has no desire to change you and is okay with you the way you are, then why did you need saving? I mean, if he's okay with how you are, then what would you need to be saved from? Why would there be any need for salvation at all? And listen, if you do need saving, then why would God want you to continue in what caused you to need to be saved? That's right. He changes us, right? Yes. Uh, I'm glad he changes us. Yeah. Aren't you? Yes. I'm glad that in Christ we are new creations. I'm glad that old things pass away. I'm glad that he separated us as far as the east is from the west from our former iniquities and trespasses and practices and all those things. We ought to be thankful for those things. And therefore, if God doesn't change your life, what do we do with phrases like out of uh, Romans with walking in newness of life? Doesn't that imply different than before? God changes us and we ought to be grateful for that, not downplay it and not deny it. Amen. Now, Jude, who was another of the Lord's half-brothers, and please understand why I say that, he was a half-brother of the Lord. He had a different dad, yep. yeah. right? Yeah. Same mom, different dad. Now, he, I was telling first service, if you read through Jude, I think what it ought to say at the top of the page is kaboom. <laughs> I mean, he just lays it out. And listen to what he says about false teachers in Jude 14 to 19. He speaks about Enoch, the seventh of Adam. So he goes all the way back to uh, Genesis chapter 5. Prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment at all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly... Uh, Jude's got a thing about being ungodly, it sounds like. <laughs> ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, a, a common practice of the Antichrist, interestingly, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by who? The apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is why Paul was establishing his credentials as, as an apostle. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Holy Spirit. Can you be born again and not have the Holy Spirit? Yes. 
No, every person that's born again has the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of their future inheritance. So Jude is saying false teachers are not saved. They do not have the Holy Spirit, as is evidenced by their ungodly behavior. Now, remember, part of the gospel is repentance. Yeah. Yeah. Amen? When John the Baptist was be, uh, imprisoned and then uh, shortly after beheaded, Jesus picked up the message of John and said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Peter preached the first gospel message after Pentecost, those who were cut to the heart or convicted said, What do we do? Peter said, Repent. Repent. Repentance is part of the gospel. As is having the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and empowers us to turn from it. And we have many people today who speak harshly about the Word of God, who are critical of the Word of God, who walk according to their own lusts. And remember, lust means by definition to long for forbidden things. And if forbidden things and longing for them is considered ungodly, then those forbidden things have to be real and they have to be defined, right? right. So we can stay away from them, and the Bible does just that. They walk according to their own longing for forbidden things. And because people want to hear their message, they take advantage of them for their own gain. And then Jude says, but you. In other words, don't go that way. Don't go down that path. But you, but me. Remember the apostles predicted this assault on and mockery of the gospel in the last time. And the truth concerning the everlasting gospel remains that the gospel is what God says it is, not what people want it to be. Verses 7 through 11. You guys are awful quiet this morning. Let's pick it up in 7. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, or Peter, and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me. They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised or the Jew. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. And this is a reference to Paul's collecting of an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Remember in Acts, there was a man named Agabus who was a prophet who predicted a famine was coming and it was going on at this time. And there were many poor Jews in Jerusalem and Paul had a heart for them as did the other apostles. Now he continues to give his defense of the gospel by saying to the Galatians that instead of adding circum circumcision or anything else to the gospel, these guys recognized that what I was saying to the Gentiles was the same thing they were preaching to the Jews. Now remember, in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, we're told there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are diversities of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the what? Same the same God who works all in all. Now, this is what Paul was saying. Peter, who was the sent one to the circumcised or to the Jews, was seeing exactly the same things as me, the sent one or the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, I've always found it curious that God in his sovereign will decided to send highly educated Paul to the completely biblically uneducated Gentiles. And then he sent the former fisherman, Peter, to the highly educated Jews. 
And the reason God did this, I believe, and I'll openly state this is speculation, I believe it's because it makes the point that it isn't about who is sent, it's about who does the sending. That's what matters. God can take anybody and use them for great and mighty things. He can use us for things that we are not capable of. Right? I mean, in our logic, wouldn't you send a former Pharisee to the Jews to deal with them and make arguments with them? But God says, nah, I'm going to use a fisherman. <laughs> going to send somebody that doesn't have all that stuff in their head. And then I'm going to use a highly educated former Pharisee and send him to people who have no clue what he's talking about. That's how God operates. He can use anyone. It's about the sender, not about the sent. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Now, one more conclusion about the everlasting gospel. And I want to get a little closer in on our last point and, and make a point that is specific and relevant to the day in which we live. Peter and Paul had the same teacher, Jesus. They were filled with the same Holy Spirit. They preached the same gospel. And it was equally effective in two completely diverse communities. Now, what that tells us is this. Listen this morning. There are no ethnic or cultural variants in the everlasting gospel. Amen. There are no ethnic or cultural variants in the everlasting gospel. If all have sinned, that means all are sinners. Amen. Doesn't matter where they live. Doesn't matter their life experience. Doesn't matter their ethnicity. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many gospel messages are there? There's just one. Is it applicable everywhere to every culture and every people group? Yes. Absolutely. Every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Now, some years ago, uh, Terry was listening to first service, and we were chatting about this. I had the great privilege to meet one of my favorite preachers, a man named Evie Hill. How many, anybody know who Evie Hill is? He's with Jesus now. Man, that guy could preach. And uh, the church was in Watts. And uh, we had gone up to visit it, and somehow Evie Hill figured out that I was a visitor. <laughs> what did he do? He said, hey, we've got some visitors here. Stand up and introduce yourselves. And one of the guys, actually, he was our worship leader here at the time. He said, I lead worship at Calvary Chapel Tustin, and this is our pastor. And Evie Hill, pastor, come on up here. He calls me up. Puts me in the pulpit with him. It's a big old lectern. And he just pulled me over close to him and just talked to me and asked me what was going on and how the church was doing. I mean, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And Terry reminded me afterwards. And it's funny because she's not one to get awestruck with anybody or anything. And uh, so Evie invited us to go back to his office after the service. And she walks in and she says, can I hug you? <laughs> Come on, girl. So it, it was just amazing. And, and what a wonderful, wonderful uh, preacher he was. He tells of a time when all the riots were going on in Los Angeles that he received threats from the Black Panthers. They threatened his life. You know what for? Preaching that white Jesus. And you know what Evie Hill said in response? He said this, I don't know anything about a white Christ. I know about Christ, a savior named Jesus. I don't know what color he is. He was born in brown Asia. He fled to black Africa and he was in heaven before the gospel got to white Europe. So I don't know what color he is. He said, but I do know one thing. 
If you bow at the altar with color on your mind and get up with color on your mind, go back again and keep going back until you no longer look at his color, but at his greatness and his power, his power to save. Listen. There may be particular manifestations of sin in regions of the world or different cultures or society. And we have that established in Scripture. Corinth battled with sexual purity and idolatry or impurity and idolatry, I should say. Galatia, as an example, was struggling with the message of the Judaizers and Colossa. Paul deals with the issue that they were allowing worldly philosophies to creep into their minds and warn them in chapter 2, verse 8. Don't let these empty philosophies philosophies and deceit creep in to the gospel message. Titus was later left alone on the island of Crete. And Paul said, you know, they have a reputation there being liars, gluttons, and evil beasts and lazy. And this witness is true. And the Lord said, Titus, go there and preach the same gospel that was preached in Corinth, in Galatia, and Colossae, because there's only one gospel message. It's appropriate to all ethnicities and cultures. Amen? Amen. Now, that's the whole point, is there's not a different message that needs to be customized for anyone. It is the same gospel that can save everyone. And listen, this is one of, you guys, you guys have pet peeves, right? Everybody's got a few, yeah. thousand. Yeah. We've all got pet peeves, and this is one of mine. Outside of language barriers dividing the church, I think every church ought to be an absolutely beautiful blend of all ethnicities and cultures. That's what the church is supposed to be like. And listen, let me offer this one caveat. There are types of preachers and styles of worship that one believer may prefer over another. But the content of the message and the object of worship has to be the same in every church. And listen, in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul said, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak what you're thinking. No, no that you all speak what? The same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And listen, whether the preacher is soft-spoken, warm-voiced, and conversational, like I'm not, <laughs> or whether he's a wake-the-dead, forehead patent pulpit-pounding preacher like E.V. Hill, the gospel content still remains the same. And whether the worship is rock and folksy or with choir and orchestra, the object of worship remains the same. Now listen, there's room for personal taste and preference in choosing the church, but that should not be based on everybody looks like me. Nor should it be based on everybody has the same interpretation of a non-essential matter like me. Now, I don't know why. Well, I, I guess I do know why. But there's always been this animosity between the uh, Calvinist and the Arminianist uh, uh, view of how one gets saved. Let me just say this. You don't have to be either one. Yeah. I'm not either one. I'm a staunch Calvinianist. <laughs> Amen? Amen? I believe God saved me and he was the only one that could do it. I happen to believe that I got saved because I made the decision to respond to the gospel message. I don't believe like the Calvinists do in irresistible grace that you're drawn in like some kind of tractor beam and you just can't resist what God's doing, even though it is irresistible. People resist it all the time. 
People hear the gospel and reject it all the time. But listen, John MacArthur is a Calvinist. As a matter of fact, he's probably the poster boy for it. But I'll tell you one thing. He believes in the blood of Christ as the only means by which someone can be saved. He believes in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your future inheritance. He believes that the Israel of today is the Israel of the Bible and God has a redemptive plan for them. And that's not going to change. He believes in prophecy. He believes in all the same things I believe in other areas, but we disagree on the initiation of the salvation process. But he believes it's Christ who saves. Amen. So listen, I, I love John MacArthur. I think he's great. Yeah. He's a wonderful Bible teacher. But in all of my commentaries that I've read over the years, I don't read his on Romans. Because <laughs> I completely disagree. I think he's got the wrong perspective. But listen, we need to quit dividing. Now, there's a time to not have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, right? right? There's a time where we say, you know what? Can't partner with that. Can't, you know, associate with that. Need to point it out as something that is robbing people of their souls. And there's room for personal taste. There's room for preference. But we've got to quit dividing over non-essential matters. We're the body of Christ. Hello? And that's why Paul said, is Christ divided? The implied answer, of course, is no. Now, we have to remember that it's the same gospel that's saving Jews, that's saving Gentiles today. The gospel that Peter preached, Paul preached. Someday, an angel is going to preach the everlasting gospel in the high point in the sky during the tribulation period, which reminds us you can't mess with the gospel's content without impacting its effectiveness. You can't make it be what you think it should be without robbing it of its eternity and transformative, eternity changing and transformative power. And listen, thankfully, it doesn't need cultural or ethnic adaptability. It is what it is, and it's effective everywhere it is preached. We're all sinners, and there's only one Savior. And if I could use a cliche or an adage from the day, he is one size fits all. <laughs> Somebody say amen. Amen. Father, we are grateful for your word today. We thank you for this very direct book that you inspired Paul to write to deal with something that was very, very dangerous early in church history, and it was adding to your gospel message. And Lord, we pray that in these last days, that not only would we stay on point, so to speak, but God, that we would be passionate about those around us who are perishing. And remember, we don't need to water things down. We don't need to uh, amend what you have told us to preach and say and do. We need to just simply do it. Go and preach the gospel like you said. And let you do the saving. And whether it be through uh, the means that the, the Calvinists would believe or the uh, free will people would believe, whatever that may be, let us be obedient to what you have said to do. Preach. Tell people about Jesus and let you do the rest. So help us to be faithful in that. We thank you for our time together today. We do pray for our country. We pray for this election. Lord, I pray that you shake and wake up Christians to their responsibility to let their voice be heard and to have an influence on culture and human government that you yourself said you ordained. So help us, God, not to sit on the bench and then grumble about what happened. But help us, Lord, to be proactive and engaging in influencing our culture today, being salt and light that you've called us to be, including in the ballot box. So we're thankful for our time together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.